Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. This is the show where we build an entire campaign for you to run for your group, and we're well into our second season of building. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and the subject for this season, for those just joining us, is the Fallout role-playing game. And I've been noting this a bit more lately, but it's because I'm getting more notes about it. Even if you don't play Fallout, you can still take the stuff we're creating and drop it into the post-apocalyptic game setting of your choice. And as I've been saying since episode one this season, if you're needing a copy of the rulebook, hit up your local game or bookshop, or you can get a PDF or hard copy from the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. And for the record, the show is not sponsored by Modifius, so it's not that I mention them all the time for money. I've said this a time or two in the past as well. I do this because I'm using their game on my show, and it just seems like a common courtesy. Anyway, we need to kick off Act 3 of our campaign this week, but before we build new, we need to cover what we built last week. And I have a couple of corrections I need to make to last week's show, but let's do our recap first. We had two episodes last week, and in the first, our group was tasked by Mackenzie Cook to cross the river to locate a group of raiders that had been crossing the river and wreaking havoc on the north side of the city. Due to that group killing her dog, she didn't really care how the situation got resolved, so that kind of left things pretty open. You know, kind of like when your one buddy tells you, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Yeah, pretty much means I can do anything. The group crossed the river and had their first encounter with the Scorched, then made their way to the steel mill in Granite City. When they got there, they found the Raider group in question in a fight to the death with a group of super mutants. The muties won and our group finished them off. Afterwards, they searched the area and found crates from iRobotics, Garson Tactical, Jessup Chemicals, and from Victor's stash. They also found some with no markings, but noted that they'd previously held a chemical of some kind. They also found a holotape with the voice of the woman who'd spoken to them when they were in the Ledoux bunker previously. Apparently, she and her company had been sponsoring this group, but she chose to sever that arrangement. The group returned to home base, and we closed that scenario at that point. The second episode had our group receive a package from a mysterious source that directed them to Lafayette Square for a meeting. When they got there, they got another package with a key that opened a mausoleum north of their position. They got it opened, found a secret tunnel below, then solved a number of puzzles and disarmed some traps before reaching the destination. That destination was a basement used for storage, and when they got inside, they found four Brotherhood of Steel members locked in a metal cage. One of them, Paladin Zane, informed the group that they were in a lot of trouble before she passed out. And we ended that session on the cliffhanger. Now, before we move on, I need to get to the corrections for those episodes. I've got two for the first episode, and the first is to note that when I gave the number of dead raiders after the big fight, I only mentioned a dozen men when I'd said there were two dozen previously. Just double the numbers I gave you and all will be good. I also neglected to mention, though I was thinking it when I wrote it initially, that all of the crates the group found were empty. So there was nothing there that would give the group clues as to what actually was in those crates other than what we described. From the second episode, I have only one correction to make. I really needed to make the cemetery a bit smaller. So let's go with 10 yards by 10 yards or 30 feet by 30 feet. I wanted it to feel small and cramped, and I think knocking five yards off of it works a lot better. 
Those are the corrections. And since we've taken care of all the business we needed to take care of, let's build the first session of Act 3. We'll pick right up where we left off, which is with Paladin Zane having just passed out and her three companions already out cold. The group needs them to get awake so they can figure out what the heck happened and try to get them out of there if that's what they plan to do. The very first thing we need to do is mention that in addition to Paladin Zane, there's one more woman and two men in the cell. Zane has bullet wounds in both thighs, though the wounds have been bound and the bleeding has pretty much stopped. It's obvious, however, that she's had the bejesus beaten out of her, as pretty much her entire body has bruises on them, and several of them are so purple in color they're nearly black. The other woman has burn holes in both shoulders, obviously from laser fire, and those have been somewhat treated. Much like Paladin Zane, her wounds have been bound and she's been beaten pretty badly. The two men are a different story. They've both got serious chest wounds, and while they've been bound and somewhat treated, it's obvious they weren't treated as well as they could have or should have been, and it's easy to figure out why. Whoever did this wanted the men out of the way so they could try to get information from the women. Misogynistic as all get out, I know, but that's what we're dealing with. So obviously they had no idea who they were dealing with. So the group needs to get to treating some wounds. The easiest way to get everyone stable and conscious would be to administer stim packs, and one per person will be enough to get the job done. If the group doesn't have enough stim packs, or they're just really stingy with them, they do have other options, and I'm pulling all of this from page 34. They can use intelligence plus medicine to treat the wounds with a difficulty of two for the ladies and three for the guys. Now, I have to point out that using these checks doesn't actually fix the wounds. It just allows them to be bound or treated enough to allow the individuals to wake up and be able to move. They're not going to be at full strength, but that would also be the case with stim packs. Page 34 has all the details on this, so give it a look before you crank up the adventure for this week. Once they're conscious, they obviously want to be freed from the cage, but Paladin Zane will acknowledge that there's no reason why the group should trust them, since unless they happen to have a member of the Brotherhood in their party, there's not a Brotherhood presence in the area. Now, I happen to have two members in my party, so this is going to probably all be for naught, trust me. Regardless, she's going to ask that they check to see if their holotags are there, since they will have their images on them. The group won't have to search too hard for them since they were dropped into the pile with their uniforms. They can then confirm that these folks are who Zane says they are, or they managed to come up with some really good fakes. Zane also asks for their uniforms so they can at least try to be presentable. While they're getting dressed, she summarizes the situation for them. And I am doing the direct quote here. I'll get into why we're here later. When we got close to the river on the east side, our transport began to take heavy fire around what looked like an old steel mill. We had to do a quick drop and hoof it across the bridge to get here. We kept getting attacked by either raiders or muties, and those Yao Guai didn't make it any easier. We also ran into what looked like orange feral ghouls who were shooting at us. But they're not what got us, though we did blow through some supplies. We crossed the river and headed due west. But before we could get to where we were heading, we were ambushed by a group dressed in all black tactical gear. They gassed us, then hit us with everything they had. We held our own for a bit, but when they realized they might lose, they brought in a half a dozen men in power armor, and that took care of things. 
I must have gotten knocked out because the next thing I remember is waking up tied to a chair with men in masks asking me questions and beating on me. She'll then take a look at the group. I'd love to get more into this, but I think it's best we get our gear and get out of here first. When we get somewhere safe, I'll elaborate. Her team will gear up with what's there, and her compatriots, whom she identifies as Scribe Cullen, the other female, Scribe Tanner, the guy with blonde hair, sorry, we haven't done descriptions yet, and Knight Monroe. Zane checks her power armor and gets in, noting that, I don't have a lot of power left, so maybe we should consider going out the way you came in. Going out the other way is a bit more of a fight than I think I want to try right now. The other three managed to find their armor, which had been hastily dumped into a crate, but the lid hadn't been, like, nailed onto it. So with everyone geared up, Zane looks at the group to lead the way out. If they hesitate, she will say, Get us somewhere safe and I'll tell you everything. We just need to get away from here first. Now getting back out to where they started, that's easy. With all the doors opened and the traps dealt with, they can run back to the mausoleum entrance and out into the cemetery. At that point, the group needs to decide where they want to take these Brotherhood of Steel members. They're probably not going to want to take them back to their base, though if they do, that's cool. Diamond Pass might also be an option for them, and that's also acceptable, obviously. Or if they've got another hidey hole they use when they're out and about, they can go there. If they do go to the pass, Bruno can and will give them access to a house that Victor owns but doesn't use. I call it a house, but it's more like a one-room shack, and it's not the one they used before. It does have enough room for Zane to take off her power armor and for everybody to sit down. Bruno would also bring him food and beverages and more medicine and stim packs if needed. I realize I'm sort of glossing over that, but it's mostly because I'm not sure which option the group's going to take. So you're going to need to fill in the details here based on what your group decides to do. We should note that Zane doesn't have enough power to get much further than the distance between the keel and the riverfront. So keep that in mind as you work out the details and Google that distance if you need to in order to figure out the radius. And while we have a moment, let's get into physical details about our four Brotherhood of Steel members. Zane is around six feet tall, and while her weight seems to be less than what you'd expect for that size, it's apparent she doesn't skip weight day on her calendar. She's got six-pack abs and toned arms and toned shoulders. Her red hair is cut in a buzz cut, and she's got a number of scars on her face. It also looks like her nose probably has been broken a couple times. Cullen is around five and a half feet tall and looks to weigh a bit over 100 pounds. She keeps her raven black hair in a ponytail, and while she's in good physical shape, she's nowhere near as toned as Zane is. She also lacks the scars Zane has, and the nervousness she shows would lead one to believe she hasn't been in the field much. Tanner has the look of an MMA fighter. He's basically one big muscle with no neck to speak of and scars all over his body. His blonde hair is also in a buzz cut, and he has a perpetually angry look on his face. Monroe has the look of a scholar. His horn-rimmed glasses are strapped to his head. His prematurely gray hair is frizzed out, giving him a sort of Einstein look. And it's obvious his uniform's a bit on the baggy side. He doesn't speak much, and when he does, it's in a soft, almost whispery voice. He's in good shape, though, but he's not in nearly good as shape as either Zane or Tanner. Zane is going to do the majority of the talking for her team. 
She reports that her team was headed to St. Louis to look into goings-on here, and when she describes some of the things the Brotherhood was having them look into, it's a lot of the same stuff the group already took care of. She nods, but notes that you've only peeled back a couple of layers of that particular onion. There's more to it than you know. She then explains, You no doubt have surmised that Garson Tactical, Jessup Chemicals, and iRobotics are all working together as part of the same team. What you probably didn't know, or maybe you did, is that they're all part of the same corporation, Stokely Incorporated. You wouldn't have heard of them because they technically only exist on paper. But we had a team in D.C. that came across records dating back about 400 years that show Stokely was originally a weapons manufacturer that sold to pretty much every government in the world. When the war started, they were suspected of selling weapons to the Chinese and they were shut down. Or at least that's what we thought. When our scribes dug deeper, they found records indicating Stokely executives had started several of their own companies, and they showed that each of the companies was buying products and supplies from the others. Now, how does St. Louis fit into all of this? Garson Tactical, Jessup Chemicals, iRobotics, those were all founded by former Stokely executives or employees. One of those men was a fellow by the name of Orenthal Denman. Now, that was about... 250 years ago, give or take. But when we heard they were still in existence out here, Elder Ford decided we needed to come check it out. And you know pretty much everything that happened after that. When asked if any of them can remember anything about who attacked them, it's Monroe who responds. Those black uniforms had a patch on them, but they were also blacked out, so they were hard to make out details on. He can describe what the insignia looked like, and it's an exact match for the insignia for Garson Tactical. This is probably when the group reports their attack on the base for Garson, along with any of the other mission details they want to provide. Zane will take all of that in before she responds. Since you all have experience with Garson, Jessup, and the Synthmakers, I would like to hire you to work with us to track all this down to the source and stomp it out. I don't have any caps on me to pay you now, but I can assure you that once we can get an airship here between caps and gear, we can make it more than worth your while to help us. And if any of you would like to join the Brotherhood, I can handle a field evaluation for you and we can get you in as soon as the ship gets here. Insofar as when that ship is going to arrive, Zane's not really sure. We were told to get boots on the ground here, start investigating, and report when we had actionable information. We've got two issues with that at the moment. We don't have actionable information, and even if we did, our communications gear was taken when we were. Unless we go back and hit that facility, we're going to have to come up with another way to get a message out. By this point, it's obvious that all four of the Brotherhood of Steel members are worn out. Zane asks if it would be possible for them to get some rest in the house, and the group can speak for Victor on that if they'd like to, or if they're at their base, they can certainly make that call on their own. Zane asks if they can meet in the morning to work out a plan of action. And regardless of where they took the group, Bruno is going to be waiting for them. If it's their base, he'll knock on their door. If it's at Diamond Pass, he'll be waiting outside the shack for them to exit. He'll note that Victor would like to meet with them to discuss the new arrivals. When they arrive in his office, this might be the first time they've seen him in a bit. That sort of depends on the decisions they've made over the past couple of adventures. Regardless, he asks that they sit, and he'd like to know what exactly brought the Brotherhood of Steel to St. Louis. Since the group should have nothing to hide, they're probably going to tell him everything. He'll nod as he listens, but will definitely be shocked by the Stokely Incorporated info. 
He's obviously never heard of him, but he'll also note that it makes a lot of sense since the groups always seem to be working in consort, and that's got to be the best explanation for all of this. He doesn't ask the group for anything, just that they stay safe and pass any information along to him that might help him in doing business. He also gives the group a power cell, noting that the paladin's armor might need more power, and it never hurts to provide the Brotherhood with a freebie from time to time. If they get into the discussion of who might have attacked the Brotherhood of Steel, Victor's not going to have any theories, but he is more than willing to look into it, especially since that type of information would go a long way towards gaining a favor or two with the Brotherhood down the line. Now, they can discuss anything else the group wants to, and depending on the last time they spoke with him, they might be wanting to go over everything they've been through. Again, he doesn't have a lot of information to provide, other than to tell the group that based on everything he's heard... Jessica Denman is as ruthless as they come, and she makes her brother and Tucker Malloy look like altar boys by comparison. So, as his way, he warns them to be careful when dealing with her. When their conversation is over, they'll head back to wherever it is they lay their heads, and we'll fast forward to morning. Zane and her crew are feeling a lot better this morning, and a lot of that would have to do with 8-10 to 10 hours of sleep plus a good meal or two. They don't talk while they're eating, and it's obvious it's because they haven't had a good meal in quite some time. Zane will ask while they're eating what the date is, and based on what they tell her, she realizes they'd been held in captivity for about three weeks. So that definitely explains why they were in as bad a shape as they were. After the meal, Zane and her team want to sit with the group and sketch out some sort of plan. They believe that the first objective should be to go back to where they were being held and get their communication gear back. That being said, they realize that even with the group, they're going to probably be outgunned. But without the gear, they're going to be stuck here without support for quite some time since the elder won't know when to come. And if he doesn't hear anything for long enough, he might believe the team was wiped out, which would change his strategy and might send him somewhere else. So, they need to put their heads together and come up with a plan. But, since this isn't their town, they leave the logistics to the group. This is the group's chance to shine, either to impress Zane so they can possibly join the Brotherhood, or to make sure they get as good a payment as possible. Now, I know my group. They're not going to do anything without getting as much recon done as possible, and I'm going to bet your group is the same way. And even if every member of your group has managed to get power armor by this point, knowing as much about where you're headed to is always a good idea. So let's work out the location based on all the movement the group did when they were underground. I went back to last week's second episode and I did some rough math. And with my math skills, that was definitely very rough math. First thing I have to note is I realized when I started all of this is that I gave the wrong address for the church last week. It's actually on Jefferson Street, but for our purposes, that's really not a big deal. I worked the distances approximately in yards, turning when I was supposed to and such. And even though I'm pretty sure the math doesn't work out for the location I ultimately chose, it's close enough and it works well for our purposes. That location, the main post office location for the St. Louis area in downtown St. Louis. It's located on the corner of South 18th Street and Jefferson, and in our time, it's where the majority of the mail for the St. Louis area comes in, gets sorted, and gets sent out to all the other post offices in the St. Louis metro area. So it's a big place, and even with the damage the building surely would have taken in the bombing, it's perfect for what we're doing here. And the best part? 
It's about a 20 to 30 minute walk from Diamond Pass. So they've probably walked past it a hundred times and not realized what it was. That means we get to lay things out on our own again. The old post office takes up a huge amount of space. It's like a square block, if not larger. And the building has multiple levels. Now, if I'm being honest, I've never actually been inside the building. So I can't speak of the layout of the inside. So I'm just going to do what I want to here. The first thing I need to point out is that about a third of the building has collapsed. Whether it was during the bombing itself or over the subsequent years, it doesn't matter. The rubble was left there, so there's a lot of concrete pieces there. There are still a lot of columns in the front, and the doors are there, though it's obvious they've been replaced with steel ones. There's also no security on the outside. No turrets, no men, no machines, nothing keeping watch. There also doesn't seem to be any eye-in-the-sky type security, and will allow for perception plus survival difficulty to, to notice this. They might see some things way off in the distance, but it's obvious they're not watching this building, which, if we're being honest, should really concern the group. When they get close enough to the door, they realize that not only is this door steel, it appears to be solid steel, like what you'd use on a bank vault. That means the group needs to figure out if they want to enter through the front or go back through the tunnels and work their way upstairs. It's really up to the group to decide which way they want to do it, and things will ultimately go pretty much the same way. But we need to build them both out since we can't predict which one they'll actually take. <laughs> All right, I'm pretty sure I know which one my group's going to choose, but we need the other option for yours just in case. Let's start with the option I'm pretty sure my group was going to take, which is to head back to the cemetery and go through the tunnels. From here, it's only about 10 minutes or so to get there. And after all they went through in their previous trip, they're going to probably be annoyed to realize how just short a distance they wound up going. But since they've been here before, they've pretty much cleared out all the traps, so that's something in their favor. Note I said pretty much. I mean, they did bust four prisoners out. And I don't know about you, but if I had four prisoners locked up and they got out, I'd make sure whoever comes along next can't get themselves right back in. So the door to the room is trapped heavily. There are three traps on the door, two hinge traps, one fragmine each, three fragmines buried in fresh, they can tell, concrete on either side of the door for a total of six, and four buried beneath under fresh concrete in the floor. To find the door traps, it's perception plus survival difficulty two since they've dealt with these before. If they notice the fresh concrete on the walls and floors, we can drop the difficulties we're giving by one, but I'd note they need to specifically mention that they're looking for them to get the benefit, unless you just happen to be a softy of a GM like me. Otherwise, the difficulties are three for the wall, since they've also dealt with these before, and five for the floor. They're all interconnected, so a failure on one will set them all off. I realize we didn't do that before, but I'd argue that this time, whomever it is that set all this stuff up got smarter. So it's perception plus explosives difficulty five, and they have to do that for each trap. So that makes three rolls. And as I said, failing even one sets them all off. You do the math. This could be a campaign ender if it doesn't go right. Oh, and it's probably a good time to get you the stats for our folks. I was going to create them from scratch, but I ran out of time. So we'll use the stats for the knight on page 383, the paladin on pages 383 and 384, and the scribe on pages 384 and 385. And they will be equipped as they are in the stat boxes. 
Okay, so with the traps dealt with, now they get to get to the lock. It is locked, but it's also a new lock, naturally. This one appears to be a bit more complicated than the previous one, so let's go with perception plus lockpick difficulty four. They get the door open, and when they enter that all-familiar basement, they'll probably be surprised to not find anyone down there waiting for them. The crates are still there, along with all the other stuff that was spread out previously. Oh, and if you've got one of those groups who just have to stop to search and or loot everything they find, the crates are empty and the stuff on the shelves are mostly black uniforms and black boots. We're not giving them anything here. They're going to have to earn it. About 20 feet right of where they found the Brotherhood of Steel team, there's a five foot wide walkway between stacks of crates. And they might have noticed that the first time they were in here, but if we're being honest, they were probably more concerned with finding four nearly naked people. The space they find leads to the stairs heading up. The door at the top of the stairs is not locked, nor is it trapped. That should get the group's collective neck hair standing on edge, especially since they were able to get here pretty much without having anything standing in their way. And when they open the door, they find out why. Oh, and make sure you know what order the group is using to go up the stairs because it will come into play right about now. There's a sentry bot planted right in front of the door and he opens up as soon as the group opens the door. And yes, the door opens towards the sentry bot, so away from the group. Now, with the number of individuals involved here, this shouldn't be a killer, but it's always possible the group either doesn't handle it or turns around and retreat fast enough. Keep an eye on things and make adjustments as needed. You're also going to have to figure out how to get them through that doorway and out onto the floor. And the stats for sentry bots are on page 365. Once that's done, it's a couple of steps out into the main hallway, and this is where things get interesting. There's a dozen armed individuals closing in on the group wearing black uniforms with blacked out logos on them. And if you've got a group my size, you'll need to consider increasing the number of attackers. Since I'll have a total of 12 when you take my group and add in the four Brotherhood of Steel members, I got to make sure I've got at least four more than the total number. That's going to be 16. So to keep things interesting, we're going to change up what we used as the template for these guys. Use the Raider veteran stats on page 390, but change the spike armor to sturdy combat armor. This is going to be a second verse, same as the first situation, as they'll get another group when they head down the hall into another main chamber. After that, do it twice more. Then they've gotten everything here. Before we continue, let's discuss the option where they go in the front door. The doors are solid metal, but the doorway and walls on either side are concrete, so they can blow a hole in the wall and enter or somehow take that door down. Once they do that, bring in the four encounters with the tactical dudes and have the sentry bot join in at some point. Bringing both of our options together, the group will certainly be looking for anything that gives them an idea who've actually sent these guys and or who they're working for and the communications gear for the Brotherhood of Steel. Give them the perception plus survival check difficulty five to find something. And if nobody makes it, one of the Brotherhood of Steel members will find it. It's really hard to find, but they find a scrap of paper hidden among a bunch of furniture and other stuff. Here's what it says. Parker Donahue, dome, supplies if needed. That's not going to make any sense to any of the folks standing here, but I'm sure the group has an idea of someone who can help. It's also going to be annoying that they didn't find the communications gear, but you know what? We're going to get to all of that next time. Not only that, we'll see where this continued investigation by the Brotherhood of Steel takes us. 
In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. This week, we check out the Year Zero engine. We found it to be an interesting platform to build a game on, and we think you'll feel the same way. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. And we're right about a month out from Archon 46. It's coming up September 29th through October 1st at the Gateway Convention Center in Collinsville, Illinois. We'll be there all three days, and we'll also be doing a live role-playing history broadcast from the convention. Check out the Archon website at archonstl.org. That's A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L.org for more information about the con. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in any of the fine products produced by Modifius, check out your friendly local game shop or the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can check us out all over social media, so check the info box for this episode or the Bad GM Productions website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we pick up with our cliffhanger and see where the investigation into who jumped the Brotherhood of Steel continues. That's next week, though. Until next week, I am the Bad GM Wayne Davis. I'll see you at the game table.